We then must deal decisively with sin. Never, ever cause another believer to fall. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. You know, there is an old hymn, maybe some of you are familiar with it, but it uh, has this title and this theme of it. It says, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. Remember that? Have you heard that hymn? You know that? Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. So I want to ask you, is Jesus gentle, meek, and mild? And the answer is yes. Yes, he is, except when he is not, right? Except when he's not. He is full of compassion. He's full of grace. He's full of mercy. But he's also a righteous God, isn't he? He is righteous. And he's full of wrath against sin. So I want to ask you a question here today. I want to imagine if Jesus were to come to Wonder Lake Bible Church and to pay us a visit in the flesh. Now, he is here with us right now, isn't he? But if he were to come in the flesh and stand before us here now and pay us a visit, how do you think that might go? What do you think? Or how about this? What if he were to step in as our pastor for a while? Give me a little sabbatical time. If Jesus were to step in as our pastor, and he were to stand up here week in and week out preaching the sermons, let me ask you, do you think that you would always like his sermons? Do you think that you would walk out of the sanctuary every week and drive home thinking, Oh, that was so encouraging and uplifting. I feel so good now. You know what? I'm sure I have no doubt there would be us many Sundays when we would walk out feeling very encouraged and uplifted and feeling good. But do you think that would always be the case? No, it wouldn't. Do you think you might get upset sometimes by things he says? Perhaps you wouldn't like it. I wonder how many visitors wouldn't come back. Do you think that might happen? We might have visitors and then they decide, well, I'm not coming back. Did you hear what he said? I wonder if some of us might look for another church. Hmm. Well, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He's the Lamb of God but he's also the Lion of Judah. And in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, when confronted by the idea of Aslan, the lion, who is a picture of God, young Lucy asks, is he safe? She's a little afraid of him, seeing this big, powerful lion. Is he safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver says. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Mr. Tumnus then also says, He's wild, you know, not a tame lion. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's gentle, meek, and mild. But he's also the Lion of Judah. And he is not a tame lion. 
he is most definitely not tame. What do we mean? I mean that he says and does, he said and did things sometimes that are hard to accept, didn't he? He continues to say things today through his word to us that might be hard to accept. And today in our text, we're going to hear of some things that we might not like to hear. Now, I can tell you without a doubt, there's a couple of things that many people in our culture definitely don't want to hear about. And there are some churches that don't even want to talk about them. Are you ready to hear these two very offensive words? Well, here they are. Sin and hell. But the fact is, Jesus had much to say about these things, and we would do well to listen carefully to him. So we are continuing here in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ, a harmony of the Gospels in which we are following a text put together here by John MacArthur in which he takes all of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, puts them together into one harmonious account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's our message for today. Stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks. What are stumbling blocks? These are things that people trip over, and the idea is these are things that people trip over and fall into sin. Things that cause people to sin and the danger that there is from that. So... We then must deal decisively with sin, never ever cause another believer to fall into sin. A little context for our text here. The disciples had asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, they were all jockeying for position, wanted to be the greatest. And he answered by telling them that the greatest is what? The the least, right? So if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must be a humble servant of all. He then took a little child in his arms and said that one must be like that child, humble, dependent, trusting, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says that we should receive one like this, receive one, what? Accepting. A child was... They, they, they did not lift their children up the way we do in our culture today. A child was the lowest and the least among them. But Jesus said, you must be like that, and you must receive such a one as this. Serve even the least. Be a servant to the least. And Jesus says, whoever does that, whoever humbles himself, as this little child, in fact, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives or accepts ministers to one such little child like this in his name receives him, receives Jesus and the Father. Now, when John, the disciple, heard this, his mind was troubled apparently then by something that had happened earlier. He says, I must humble myself. I must receive someone like this in Jesus' name. He's troubled by something that had happened a little earlier. 
Let's look at what John says. It says, Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, I think what we're seeing here is what we would call the danger of sectarianism or an unhealthy, unbiblical division and grouping of ourselves. See, Jesus' words about whoever receives one such child in his name receives him and the Father. It bothered John because he recalls an earlier incident in which the disciples had forbidden someone who was ministering in Jesus' name. Why? Because he was not one of them. This man was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he was not one of their group. He was not one of the twelve. But nevertheless, he was successfully doing this. And the twelve didn't like it. It seems apparently they seemed to think only they were the ones who could do such things as that. Only they were authorized to do that. Only they could minister in Jesus' name. Who does this man think he is? He's not one of us. But Jesus says what? If one is working for Jesus in his name, he cannot work against Jesus at the same time. So though this man did not follow Jesus in exactly the same way as the 12, he wasn't part of their group, he nevertheless, he truly followed Jesus. And he stood against the works of the devil. And Jesus goes on to solemnly affirm that anyone who does even the smallest service in his name will be rewarded. Even giving a cup of water to another believer will be remembered and rewarded. So I said this passage points out the danger of sectarianism. In this context, sectarianism refers to an unbiblical division of the body of Christ. An unbiblical division of the body of Christ. It is separating from other followers of Christ and casting aspersions on them because they're not exactly like us. They're not a part of our group. See, that can be a dangerous thing, can it? People thinking like, oh, well, this is in our group. We've got the truth here. And if you're not part of our group, well, then you're suspect, right? Now, is it true that we must exercise discernment? Absolutely, it's critical. The scripture makes that clear. In fact, years later, this same John, who would then be the Apostle John, he would go on to write of the need to test the spirits, that is, to exercise wisdom and discernment. 
He tells people, don't accept everyone who comes into your fellowship, every teacher who comes into your fellowship, but test them. They may not be of the truth. So we are to exercise wisdom and discernment. We're not to receive everyone who claims the name of Christ, just at face value. And so for that, then, we are given two tests, the test of doctrine and the test of character. The test of doctrine and the test of character. Does the person's doctrine line up with the doctrine of Christ as revealed in his word? And does the person's character reflect the character of Christ? For example, 1 John 4, 1 through 3, John speaking says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Same thing in 2 John. There says, we must test the spirit. See, are they confessing right doctrine, biblical doctrine? The other is the test of character. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, whoever says, I know him, oh, I know Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's a test of character. Same thing in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 12. We're not to receive everyone, that is to accept everyone as part of the fellowship of Christ. Just because they say they are, what, there must be a test of doctrine and a test of character. There must be discernment. But we must not, though, then fall into the sin of sectarianism, whereby we think that we or our little group alone truly follows Christ. Jesus goes on to say something, and here's where the untamed lion speaks here, and we must listen. It says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, stumbling blocks. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cast it off, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to go into hell into the everlasting fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye 
rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. So here then we see the danger of sin, the danger of sin. Some have asked here, now when Jesus speaks of these little ones, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, who are these little ones to believe in him? Is he referring to literal children who believe in him? Or are these little ones who believe in him figurative children? That is, older persons who have exercised childlike faith in Christ. So are these little children? Or are they older persons but are like little children and having exercised faith in him? What do you think? Are they literal children or figurative children? I think the answer is yes. I think it's both, right? I think it's both. I think the little ones are persons who believe in him. That's the critical point. They're persons who believe in him, particularly those who are young spiritually, no matter how old they may be chronologically. Are there little children who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? There absolutely are. But I don't think those are the only ones Jesus is talking about here. I think these little ones, some of the, they're, they're figurative, they're, they're, they're little children spiritually in him. And some of them happen to be seven or eight years old, and some are 70 or 80 years old. But they are his little ones, his children, no matter how old they may be chronologically, they are his young followers spiritually. And so Jesus issues a very stern warning then to those who would cause a child of God, a little one, to stumble and fall into sin. He says that it would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he was drowned in the sea than to be the one who causes a child of God to sin. Now the millstone here was what? It was a heavy flat stone that was turned by a donkey when it was grinding grain. And so Jesus says, you know what, attaching a stone, a big heavy stone like that to a person and throwing them into the sea, that person would be better off that than causing a little child of God to fall into sin. That was actually a form of execution in those days to tie a a big rock like that to someone and throw them into the sea. We have a, 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 a more modern version of that, the mob. They call it what? The concrete shoes, right? Same concept, right? But Jesus says, you know what? That fate, you'd be better off having that happen to you than to cause one of his little ones to stumble and fall into sin by your influence. See, that's how, you, that's how you cause someone to fall. It's your influence. So what is it? It is influencing, enticing, or provoking a child of God into sin, to turn away from Jesus, and it results in great spiritual damage to that person. God takes that very seriously when people influence, entice, or provoke his little ones into sin, into turning away from him. 
into bringing damage to themselves and others through sin. I was thinking about, hmm, what might be some of these influences that we might want to watch out for? Well, there are certainly plenty of things we could look at in the culture, couldn't we? When we think of literal children, chronological, chronologically young children, they're young followers of Jesus, and even not followers of Jesus, but they're young children who are what? Being influenced by many factors at play in our culture, aren't they? Have you seen some of the elements in our public school curriculums lately? How about drag shows for children? Hmm? How about the purveyors of pornography? You know, uh, not too long ago, uh, there was a a famous man who, who died named Hugh Hefner. I think you probably know him, right? The founder of Playboy magazine who he did a lot to kind of normalize or bring pornography into the mainstream. And of course, many in the culture looked at him like he was some kind of hero or role model, that he was bringing sexual liberation to the culture. Even when he died, there were still some that were talking like that. Shortly after that, the Me Too movement came along, and all of a sudden the view of Hugh Hefner wasn't quite as glowing as it had been before. But I can tell you, even before that, what do you think God's view might have been of what Hugh Hefner had done? How in influencing little ones. The fact is, there are countless examples of corrupting influences in our culture, aren't there? Jesus says, you'd be better off having a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than doing that to my kids. Parents, do you get protective of your children, especially your little ones? You think God the Father is protective of his children? You know, I've seen actually even in our church family here, sometimes there have been persons who are corrupting influences on members of our church family who suddenly died. It's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea than to corrupt a child of God, cause them to turn away from Christ, fall into sin. Jesus then speaks of the danger of sin in your own life, in in a person's life. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter life, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to go into hell into the everlasting fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now, is Jesus speaking literally here? He's not speaking literally. It's figurative. We're not, we shouldn't actually cut our hand or feet off or pluck out our eyes. But what's he doing? He's speaking figuratively to indicate what? The seriousness and the gravity of sin and what we ought to do to eliminate it from our lives because of where it can lead us, right? Where does sin lead lead people? To hell, right? Eternal judgment, eternal condemnation. 
See, so sin can keep a person from entering the kingdom of heaven and receiving eternal life. It is sin that leads to spiritual death, to eternal judgment, to hell. Therefore, whatever might cause a person then to sin must be dealt with decisively, radically, as it is better to enter eternal life maimed than to go into hell. He's using, again, figurative language here to picture the very real need to take prompt, decisive action against sin, whatever might keep us from life, from eternal life. We must deal decisively with whatever might draw us away from allegiance to Christ. Whatever tempts us to cling to this world and its life must be removed. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute here, I thought that if someone was a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, they've been delivered fully and finally forever from the threat of hell and eternal condemnation. And I believe that's true. If someone genuinely believes in Christ, they're not going to be lost. They're not going to be condemned. Again, they have been delivered. But there's a lot of people listening to this, hearing this, who don't have that life, right? And they need to hear that judgment, that judgment is coming. But it is also true, though, that for those who are in Christ, who have been delivered from condemnation, does this mean then that we, we're, we're free to have a casual attitude towards sin in our life, that there's no consequences for it, that God doesn't take it seriously? No, absolutely not. So for the person apart from Christ, what is the great, great and grave danger? Is hell, right? For the believer in Christ, though, should our attitude be, be any less serious, though? Should we think sin is something to be toyed with? No. Why? Because sin is an offense against a holy God. See, here's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who tells us, what, that he hates sin. It is so offensive to him that he judges it eternally. But because he is love, what did he do? He provided a savior, right? Because he is gracious, he is merciful, he is love, he provided a savior to deliver us from the condemnation of sin. But for those who do not receive that deliverance in Christ, they're going to hell. And Jesus says what? It is the everlasting fire where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. And to the Jews, the wor- where the worm does not die, that represents an internal pain, an internal suffering of regret. Everlasting regret. And where the fire does not die, the fire is not quenched. It's God's external judgment on that person. So it's an internal and an external, eternal anguish. I don't like to think about that, do you? These words vividly portray the reality of hell as a place of unending punishment that awaits all of those who refuse God's offer of salvation. And the essence of hell is unending torment and external exclusion from his presence. 
Hell is not a pleasant thing, thing to think about. But yet Jesus spoke of it and he warned about it far more often than he spoke of, of heaven. What do you think? Did Jesus talk more about heaven or hell? The answer is hell. He said much more about that than he's even said about heaven. Perhaps it's this point where some people are, are leaving our church as Pastor Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven, right? He then says something that's rather curious to understand, what, difficult to understand. Jesus says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Here we see purity, preservation, and peace. Now, in that culture, salt was associated primarily with purity and preservation. Now, this is a very difficult verse to interpret. Bible scholars have suggested a number of possible meanings, but I think the view that seems to fit best here is that this verse is saying that believers are seasoned, that is, purified through fire. The fire of what? Trial, suffering, and persecution. That it is through trial, through suffering, through persecution, that believers are purified in character. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Purity of character that comes through trial and suffering, persecution. But Jesus says, but if the salt loses its flavor, that is, if it becomes less pure, pure salt cannot lose its flavor. But salt, like that salt that came from the Dead Sea where there were a lot of impurities in it, it would lose its flavor because of the presence of those impurities. And so what happens to the believer that becomes infested with impurities? They lose their flavor, right? They lose that power of purity and preservation, So if the salt loses its flavor, that is, it becomes corrupted, impure, how will it have that preserving effect on the world? It won't, right? If the church is exactly like the world, how can the church minister to the world? It can't, right? So therefore, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. That is what a disciple of Jesus is to maintain his or her allegiance to Jesus at all costs and to purge out any destructive influences, impurities in our lives that would cause us to lose our flavor. And he also tells them, have peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves. Maintain that allegiance and purity And be at peace, have peace with one another. Why? Because what? They had been arguing about what? Who is the greatest among them? So in essence, I think Jesus is saying, be loyal to me. Be pure. And then you will be able to maintain peace with one another instead of arguing about status and who is the greatest among you. 
Final thought here, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think we see here the Father's heart. This is a portrait of the Father's heart. These verses reveal how God's heart is for his children. It says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. That is, we must not look down on or show contempt for another believer. Why? Because God dearly loves them. You know that person, that fellow believer that maybe you're struggling with for one reason or another? God dearly loves that person. He says, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So, man wonder, does this mean that everyone has a guardian angel? And the answer is yes and no. In the sense that what? I think scriptures clearly teach are God's angels ministering spirits on our behalf sent to minister to us? Yes. So we all have guardian angels in that regard, right? Angels that serve us. But if by guardian angel you mean that there's one particular angel that's assigned to you, I would say, well, that's possible. It's possible. But Scripture doesn't explicitly teach that. But it does explicitly teach that God's angels are dispatched to serve you, to serve his children. Whether there's one particular one or not, I don't know. Maybe. But God's angels do serve his people. So when it says, what does it mean? He says, for their, their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. What does that mean? I think it's a figurative way of saying, like the angels of God are ever watching the Father's face, ready to obey his command when he says, go, my son Frank is in trouble and needs your help. I'm picking on you, Frank, right? Actually, you are in trouble sometimes and you do need help, don't you? So, yep. Could say that of every single one of us here, right? God's angels ministered to us. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? How do angels minister to us? Well, we see in Scripture a few things by answering prayer, being God's answer to a prayer. An angel comes to help us in some way as an answer to prayer. To encourage us, sometimes spirit angels come to minister and lift up our spirits. To protect us from danger, some angel comes to protect us in some way. Or perhaps this one, speaking of protection, perhaps an angel might come sometime to rescue us or deliver us from our own foolishness. Anybody ever have that happen? I've told you a story before, I won't tell you it again, but I can tell you there was one time in my, well, there's probably been more than that, but I can tell you at least one time in my life where I have no doubt an angel intervened and saved me from my foolishness. 
It's when I was 19 years old, and I had my first car. I told you I wasn't going to tell you this again, but here, uh, very briefly, okay. My first car was a Mustang Cobra. I was 19 years old. You know what happens with that, right? Being incredibly stupid. And I won't tell you, again, I won't tell you the whole story here, but I am convinced that angel picked up that car and set it straight and kept me from a horrible accident. There's no way that car should have ended up in the way it did in the amount of time there in that. So, right? Are they not all ministering? And perhaps that angel was beholding the face of the father, and the father said, well, there's that idiot Dan again. You see him? I told you he was going to do this when he got that car, right? There it was. We also see the Father's heart here for the straying believer. I think it is true. God goes in search of the lost, those who are outside of Christ. But he also goes in search of the straying ones, doesn't he? And I think that's the picture in view here. The 99 who did not stray, he goes after the one who did. I think this is the straying child here. So like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go in search of the one stray, so too God seeks after his straying children, lest they should perish, that is, come to great spiritual harm and devastation. Now if this is the father's heart for his children, how then can you and I be indifferent to another believer or to treat them poorly? Stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks are sinful, corrupting influences that cause a follower of Christ, especially a spiritually young, vulnerable disciple, to fall into sin. We can think of numerous examples of stumbling blocks which the world puts in our way. But what about within the church? Is it possible that we in the church can sometimes cause another believer to stumble into sin? And I think the answer is yes, we can. In fact, Scripture even explicitly instructs, right? It instructs mature believers to restrict their freedom in matters of conscience if it might cause an immature believer to stumble and fall into sin. Also, it is true that we can sin against one another in all kinds of ways. We can discourage one another, right? Our actions can cause another harm, perhaps even to leave the fellowship of Christ. I won't go through the whole list here, but I love all these, these one another commandments of Scripture. You know, we're told what? Love one another, be at peace with one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Do not envy one another. Serve one another. Be gentle with one another. Pray for one another. Bear with one another. And what? Forgive one another. Those are just some examples there. When we are being disobedient to those things, might we cause them? When we refuse to bear with one another, when we refuse to forgive one another, might we cause that person to stumble into sin? Perhaps. And what about sin in our own lives? Do we take action to deal with it decisively? Now, I know that sanctification is a lifelong process. 
But that must never become an excuse for us to become lazy, casual, or flippant about sin in our lives. God takes it seriously. Do we? So what? Well, remind us, we must deal decisively then with sin in our lives and never, ever cause another believer to fall into sin. God's judgment is coming on the world for those stumbling blocks that cause his children to fall into sin. Let us never be a part of that, right? Deal decisively with sin in our lives. Never cause another believer to fall into sin. So I would ask you a few questions. Are you committed to biblical unity? Remember we said that danger of sectarianism? Because they're not part of our church or our group. They're a different denomination or they have a different perspective on this particular doctrine or that one. Now, yeah, there are critical doctrines that we all have to uphold, right? But there are some things that we can give each other a little breathing room on that. Are you committed to biblical unity? Are you dealing with sin in your life? And do you share the Father's heart for fellow believers? There's a few things to think about. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our hope in Jesus. Lord, you've, your word has given us much to ponder here today. Lord, I pray that we would take seriously this call to deal decisively with sin, to cut it off, to remove it from our lives, and to never, ever, Lord, be an influence, a corrupting influence on someone else, especially a younger, more vulnerable follower of Jesus. May we all be good examples then, Lord, for one another. May we have salt in ourselves, and be at peace with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.